I want to welcome everyone gathered across all of our physical locations and those of you joining us online. We are super thrilled to have you with us today and uh, hopefully you were able to uh, get uh, one of these recalibrate journals last weekend. We did run out of them and uh, we're trying to get as many back in stock as we possibly can because we want you to have one. And I want to encourage you to bring it with you every week. Uh, don't uh, leave it anywhere and forget it. Uh, because of just the scarcity of these, we, uh, every one of them is really important to be able to give away to people that want to have one. But I do want to draw your attention to the QR code inside and uh, scan that because it opens up a whole bunch of additional resources to our study in Romans that you don't want to miss. Sign up for the daily Bible reading. Because I said this last week that uh, there's no way we're going to get through the entire content of the book of Romans in 11 weeks. But through daily Bible reading and the additional studies, we will. And so you're going to leave a whole bunch on the table if you don't take advantage of that. Now, a uh, couple quick things before we get going. First of all, I just want to celebrate the fact that we are going to be launching our Midtown campus in January. And uh, we're excited about that. Can we give it up for the Midtown <laughs> campus? Um, those of you that have been in our church for a while may recall that we had launched uh, Northeast and our Midtown campuses right before COVID. We had to make the really painstaking decision to push pause on both of those uh, campuses, knowing full well that in the future we would relaunch them again. We're still working on plans for Northeast, uh, but we have a date for our Midtown campus. We have a campus pastor for Midtown. Uh, his name is Alex Diaz, and he and his wife, Aaron, relocated with their family here in the summer, and just an incredible family. And uh, I, in fact, I just had Alex over to my house on Thursday night, and uh, we sat around the campfire enjoying this incredible weather that we're having. And man, I just love his heart. I love his heart for God. I love his heart for people. And in fact, I'm going to have him preach in a couple of months, so that way our entire church can get acquainted with him. And uh, I just want to ask you to be praying for the start of this campus. Uh, we are for the city, and this is an important area in our city, and uh, just be praying towards uh, the launch of the Midtown Campus in January. Uh, one other real quick thing before we get going is that uh, I just want to make you aware that here in about 30-ish minutes or so, uh, there's going to be a small section of this message that might be a little bit sensitive to young ears. And so if you are a parent and you've got little kids in the room with you right now, not trying to cause any alarm, just speaking as a dad. Like if I, as a father, I would want to have this heads up. Just want to make you aware of that. And uh, maybe, I don't know, here in five minutes or so, you might get up, take a little potty break and uh, check your kids into our amazing kids ministry environments they are awesome, right? They'll love it. Well, um, last week, we kicked off this series in Romans by saying that all of us have our internal compasses calibrated in different directions. And what I mean by that is that all of us have a way to perceive right and wrong, good and bad, just and unjust. And we're, we all have an opinion or a perspective on the myriad of issues that are going on in our world right now. And we're pretty certain that our perspective is the right one. But the thing is, is that we all have a voice or a set of voices that is informing the perspective that we have. And, and that's not all bad, but we need to evaluate it from time to time. And so for some of us, the, the perspective that is informing the direction of our compass is maybe CNN or Fox News. Maybe it is the latest book on Enneagram or the Instagram influencers that you follow. And like I said, none of that is bad, but periodically we need to stop as followers of Jesus and recalibrate our compass and ask ourselves, do those voices sound anything at all like the voice of Jesus? 
And so what we're doing in this series is we're using the book of Romans to do what it's been doing for people for centuries, recalibrate our lives back to true north because the last year and a half has knocked all of us off to some degree. And by true north, I mean this, following after Jesus in every area of our lives. And the fancy word for this is lordship. And at a very simple meaning, it simply means that I'm going to follow Jesus first and everything else is a distant second. It's the realization that what God is really after isn't my belief. Like oftentimes we're like, well, you know, I, I believe in God and it's a good place to start. But the Bible even tells us that even the demons believe, but they don't necessarily follow Jesus. See, it's understanding that until I give God my heart, it's just empty actions and empty religion. You see, when God evaluates your life and mine, he's not looking at external conformity to a religion or even a set of beliefs, but an inward transformation of the heart by his spirit, which then always affects the way that I live my life. Now, oftentimes what happens is that most of us are on board with Jesus. We like the idea of Jesus as savior, but then there's this thing sort of battling against that called the way I wanna live my life. And eventually those things will come into conflict. And at that point, we have a decision to make and we can choose to reject Jesus. God will allow you to do that. You know, it's called free will. Maybe like, well, I'm out on that. Or, or we maybe use excuses to help us uh, kind of excuse walking away. We'll say things like, well, I can't believe in a God that would allow pain and suffering in this world. And so we think by walking away from him, it solves it. Or we say, you know, I, I don't think that I like what God has to say about this subject over here. So I'm going to choose to reject it. Or here's what's happening increasingly in our world today is that we just take who Jesus is and what he says and we reshape it to fit the way that I want to live. And that is not lordship. And so this is the question that Paul is going to place the focus on in our passage today. The question is, who or what has my heart? And I want you to write this question down in your journal. I want you to really grapple with this question this week. And I want to urge you not to answer it too quickly. Because my mouth can say one thing, but my credit card statement and internet history can say another. And so what Paul's going to do by way of review is he's going to open up this letter, just like we saw last week, by telling all of us who he used to be before God got a hold of his heart. And who he used to be was a self-righteous religious jerk. But then he says to, in another letter to a young man named Timothy, he goes, hey man, I'm the worst of all sinners. Like the grace of God completely humbled him. And he says, if it can change somebody like me, then it can change anyone. And it is available to everyone. And so Paul, what he's doing is he's traveling around the Middle East on these missionary journeys. And he's telling anyone and everyone about this gospel message that has the dynamite power to save. Now, what he's doing in Romans is he is writing a letter to an incredibly influential yet massively divided church in Rome. And he's saying, hey, listen, all of your compasses are calibrated in different directions because of the culture in which you live. 
And he says, it's not a bad thing for you to have these perspectives or traditions or backgrounds, but you need to keep the main thing the main thing. And he would say, hey, listen, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, good or bad, religious or non-religious, all of us are equally dependent upon the complete righteousness and finished work of Jesus alone. And he says, this gospel has power to save. Now, from chapter one, verse 18, through the beginning of chapter two, what Paul's gonna do is he is going to painstakingly explain what it is that you and I need to be saved from. In other words, if the good news of the gospel doesn't really sound all that good to you, it's likely because you don't really understand just how bad the bad news really is. Here's another way of saying it. Paul's got to get us lost before he can get us saved, which is one of the reasons why the passage we're going to look at today is really challenging. And in fact, some of these verses, when we read it here in a moment, like I just wouldn't be surprised if maybe there's a little little bit of an emotional reaction that sort of rises up within you. This section of Romans is not only difficult, like it's become one of the most despised passages in the entire Bible. And I am going to teach it today. (laughs) Don't you wish you were me? Like I I can, I can just feel the envy in the room and online. Like you guys are like, I wish I could trade places with Aaron today. Uh, I, uh, you know, some message I've been preaching for 20 some odd years and I've just learned that some messages, man, they just get you cheered like a hero and others pounded like a nail. And I had a mentor a few years ago say to me, he goes, you know, Aaron, he said, um, uh, preaching sometimes requires you to throw yourself into oncoming traffic because the wisdom of God's word is going to run in the opposite direction of the ideologies of culture. And so I just want to acknowledge that. I want to acknowledge that I'm not getting out of this message today without disappointing some, someone. And I'm either going to disappoint some of you uh, or I'm going to disappoint God. And I just want you to know I, I love you, but I'd rather disappoint uh, you uh, because God's got a bigger truck. All right. And so, so <laughs> um, to, to, to turn to the person beside you and just simply say this. Uh, these are going to be some hard truths. Go ahead. I'm praying you have the humility to receive it. But by the looks of you, I'm not very optimistic. All right. No, actually, like just in all seriousness, I just want you to know my heart. And if you missed last week's message, go go back and and read this. Like, I, I just want you to know that I stand on this platform, not because I've got it all figured out. I stand on this platform as a fellow struggler. And I want you to know that there are areas of my life like right now that I need to submit to the Lordship of Christ. And there are areas that I thought I submitted to the Lordship of Christ, but I got to go back and I got to resubmit myself to the Lordship of Christ. And I just want you to know I'm right there in the struggle with you. Now, the reason why this is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible is because it flies in the face of the dominant ideology of our culture. Listen, Uh, that we have all had our compasses calibrated to and continued to. Some of you, since the day you were born, you don't like know anything different. And the reason why this is going to sound so alarming to you is because it's so dramatically different from everything we hear. However, I will say this, as Christians, we haven't done ourselves any favors when it comes to the way in which the end of Romans chapter one gets taught or communicated. Here's what I mean, is that this passage was never meant to be used as binoculars 
examining the lives of other people from a distance, this passage is meant to be used as a mirror to get a good look at ourselves. Paul is going to say, hey, listen, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all in the same boat. Like there is no such thing as a super Christian. That person does not exist. Like it doesn't matter if you listen to Caleb and have a Jesus fish on the back of your car or you listen to ACDC and you have an evolution fish on the back of your car. Or like me, you listen to ACDC and you have a Jesus fish on the back of your car. <laughs> right? That'll blow all your categories, right? It's like we are all in need of Jesus. What, what, what this means is there is no such thing as a major sin or a minor sin. There may be different consequences to sin, but no such thing as a major one and a minor one. This means that there is no uh, good guys and bad guys. We are all bad guys. There's only one saving good guy, and his name is Jesus. So before we jump in, what what I want to do, I I just want you to know my heart. I want to do surgery, not be um, a a hatchet man. Right? I want to use a scalpel, not a machete. And so to do that, I want to provide a little local anesthetic. And I want to take us to the Old Testament book of Daniel. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes version. But we need to understand what has been going on behind the scenes for centuries. It is nothing new. So in the book of Daniel, you've got this really evil king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody at all of our campuses say Nebuchadnezzar. It's a fun name to say, but he's an evil guy. And he rules over the city of Babylon and he captures Jerusalem. And when he does, he takes into captivity four young men from Judah's royal family. They are the best of the best. And he intentionally does that because he wants to take the best of the best from the opposing team and he wants to indoctrinate them into the ideology of the Babylonian culture. So he changes their diet. He changes their training regimen, their study curriculum, and even their names. Daniel's name gets changed to Belteshazzar, and then his three friends are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or if you grew up in church in the 90s, Rakshak and Benny, all right? (laughs) And so he takes these guys and kind of puts them into this ideology, and they are, get this, they are determined to live for God in the midst of a very ungodly culture. And they lived their lives in such a way that Jesus was on full display. Meaning they didn't get mean. They didn't get obnoxious. They didn't get a judgmental. They didn't show up at the rally with a big sign that said, hashtag Nebuchadnezzar, not my king. Like they didn't do that. They lived for Jesus in a way that stood out. Imagine that. There's so much we could learn from these guys. In fact, this should be our next sermon. I just decided it right now. Like this should be our next sermon series. All right, now check this out. Verse 20. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, because God gave them just this incredible ability, even the ability to interpret dreams, he found them, look at this, 10 times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Now, these guys were... um, Uh, living in such a way that it stood out. Nebuchadnezzar's like, man, what is different about you guys? Now, fast forward to Daniel chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar makes this gold statue 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. He tells everyone in Babylon to bow down, including our boys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse four. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, I play a mean zither, by the way, Lear, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. 
Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, what I want to point out here is this isn't just a kid's story. This is a counterfeit worship service. It is the demonic equivalent of what we just did a few minutes ago. There was an image to worship. We worship in an image too. We worship the image of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God and the exact representation of his nature. And here Nebuchadnezzar said, bow to this counterfeit king, the gold statue, and if you don't, we'll throw you into a counterfeit hell, a fiery furnace. Now last week, I told you that we have a very, very real enemy behind the scenes who is not a cartoon character, and he doesn't, you know, do the foaming at the mouth, head spinning around thing that Hollywood portrays him as. He's just simply a really, really good liar. He's a deceiver. Lots of smoke and mirrors. And here's the deal. He's been doing it way longer than you've been around. And he knows all the tricks of the trade. And we just got to open ourselves up to the fact that we could be deceived by a deceiver. Because he's really, really good. Here's the other thing that he is. is He is a counterfeit. Satan does not have an original bone in his body. God creates Satan counterfeits. What that means is if God gave us Fruit Loops, which we all know he did, Satan gives us Fruit Spins. (laughs) Like if God gave us Pringles, Satan gives us Prongles. If God gives us Dr. Pepper and Mountain Dew, Satan gives us Dr. Bob and Mountain Shouten. (laughs) If God is the true God of heaven, which he is, Satan is the counterfeit lowercase g God of this world. God gives the Holy Spirit The word is paraclete, which means helper. Satan counterfeits with unholy spirits called demons. God creates revival. Satan counterfeits with confusion, chaos, and pandemics. God calls people to repent of destructive behavior and false belief because he loves you. Satan counterfeits with tolerance and normalizes destructive behavior and false belief because he hates you. Whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits, and he is still doing this today. And the church has been on its heels long enough. We need to recognize, the Bible says, that our real battle is not against flesh and blood. And what that means is our battle is not against people who have a different political conviction than you or somebody that has a different skin color or a nationality or a lifestyle, that our real battle is against the principalities and powers of this dark world behind the scenes, creating division and confusion and chaos. Therefore, the church doesn't need to be woke as much as it needs to be awakened. And what I mean by that is that we recognize the injustices that have gone on in our past and even today, and we recognize the real enemy behind those injustices. And we say no more. Like in the name of Jesus, like no more. You're you're not going to create this division and confusion and friendly fire within the body of Christ anymore. Now, You might be sitting there going, okay, Aaron, nice little history lesson from the Old Testament. Nobody's creating gold images today to tell us to bow down. Now, you might want to rethink that. This is from North Korea. This is not 600 BC. This is 2021 AD. These are some government leaders in North Korea, people bowing down to these gold images. This is uh, from Turkmenistan. And uh, this is a warrior on a horse riding in with a sword. And if you know anything at all about your Bible, specifically Revelation, you know that is a copyright infringement. (laughs) 
Like that's our thing. Jesus rides in on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and a tat on his leg. That's ours. Here's the next one. This is modern day China. That's just downright creepy. Right now, you, you look at all this and you say, well, why, okay, why are these same things still happening? Because the same spirit is still working. Times, places, and people change. The spirit behind it remains the same. That means that as a church, we have to be full of the Holy Spirit because we are in a battle with unholy spirits. We need an outpouring of the spirit of God and power, not just more fancy strategies. So our culture uh, today in the Western world, I, I would agree with you, is likely not going to create a 90 foot gold statue and tell us to bow down. But what our culture will do is it will tell us to bow down to an ideology. Ideologies are the idols of our day. There are ideologies in our culture right now that if you will not bow down, and they don't use the word bow, they use the word affirm. Everything in the ideology. We won't throw you into a furnace, but we will fire you, cancel you, boycott you, deplatform you, remove your books from Amazon. Bow to the counterfeit or else. This has always been Satan's strategy. Now, fast forward 800 years after the book of Daniel to the book of Revelation and the city of Babylon, which is long gone, gets mentioned in Revelation uh, chapter 14. It says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. In other words, she's no longer here. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This is saying that the city of Babylon is long gone, but the spirit of Babylon is here working behind every culture and nation across time, urging people, moving people away from faithfulness to Jesus. In other words, Satan really isn't all that bothered with you believing in God. What, he, what bothers him is when you follow him. So he's like, oh, man, believe in all, him all you want, but I, I wanna try to urge you away from faith. What, what he'd really like to do is get you to not believe in God at all. But if you won't do that because God has placed eternity in the hearts of men, He'll just get you to reshape what Jesus says to fit the way you want to live. And the primary strategy is sexual immorality in all of its forms. Why? Well, because whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. So God created the universe and he said it was good. Then he created the human body. And he said, oh man, that is very good. And so Satan takes the apex of God's creation. Did you know you were the apex of his creation? And he creates a counterfeit and he's urging us to replace it for God himself. In other words, the thing that is most likely to replace the worship of God in our lives is the worship of sex. The sexual revolution ideology of the last 50 years is the dominant ideology shaping our culture today. Because times, places, and people change, the spirit behind them remains the same. Now it is with that knowledge that we are ready to read Romans 1, 18. Preaching helmet is on, all right? But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, automatically, like, you, there might be a little bit of an emotional response that rises up within you. You're like, I, I don't like that at all. Talking about the anger of God, like some translations call it the wrath of God. And you say, well, that sounds oppressive and repressive. And, and God is love. 
And he is. But you need to understand that the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. The very fact that God is angry shows how great his love is for you. Here's just a question that I've got. Why is it not okay for God to be angry? You are. Aren't you angry right now about something? Haven't you been angry over the last year and a half about something? Whether it's politics or a social issue or mass mandates or vaccine or no vaccine. Like we, we get angry over things. Here, here's the thing that's, that's right for us to get angry about. We, we should get angry about injustices that we see in the world. However, we need to come to recognize that everyone everywhere is guilty and on the wrong side of the greatest injustice ever committed. We put God on a cross. Here's another question. You ever been ripped off? You ever had somebody misrepresent something you said? You ever had somebody steal intellectual property from you? Doesn't it make you angry? See, God created this world. He designed it to be without pain, disease, war, hurt, and pandemics. And an enemy came in and he lured us away with empty promises that turned out to be outright lies. It goes all the way back to the question that he asked Adam and Eve in Genesis. Did God really say, what does that sound like? We take Jesus. We don't like what he says because it means we got to change the way we live. So we reshape it and we say, well, he didn't really mean that. That is the play that he's been using since the beginning of time. And he threw this world into chaos and brokenness, the effects of which we all feel. It was never intended to be this way. When was the last time that you genuinely grieved the relationship with God you were meant to have, but don't have? because of your sin and other people's sin. I don't know. I think anger is a pretty appropriate response. Maybe we could cut God some slack and know that he's not angry at you. He's angry for you. Verse 19, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. One of the oldest arguments that I hear periodically is people will say, I don't know that I can believe in God because what about all the people who have never heard? And I think we have this like sort of false idea or dichotomy in our minds that one day, you know, we're going to stand before God and God's going to be standing in front of the pearly gates and he's going to say, why should I let you in? And we're going to fumble around our words and we're going to maybe say, well, I was a really good person or I meant well or I attended Christmas and Easter. And God's going to go, yeah, but you didn't know Jesus, sucker. And he's going to go, boom. And we're going to go, but nobody ever told me. <laughs> Come on. I think we use that as a smokescreen. Let me just make this one observation. It's interesting to me that everybody I've ever heard that from has heard. Okay, so let God do his job. He's sovereign over the people who, quote unquote, haven't heard. But right here, Paul says in Romans, everybody knows. We have no, is invisible qualities. In other words, he's saying that in the same way, that a house reveals something about its builder, even though you never met the builder. 
Or a painting reveals something about a painter, even though you never met the painter. Creation says something about its creator. Maybe even though you haven't seen the creator with your own eyeballs. All this just fell into place. Or how do you explain this? Like, how do you explain why we sort of feel bad about like things that are wrong in the, in the world? Like, where does that even come from? So this is what a lot of um, uh, philosophers will call, and I'm not going to nerd out on this too much. I just want to introduce the terms to you. One is called the cosmological argument. This goes all the way back to the days of Aristotle. Here was the question behind this article, uh, this argument. Why is there something rather than nothing? And where did the original something come from? What that means is if the world really did indeed begin billions of years ago with the bang, where do the materials that caused the bang come from? Like you can't just keep going back in infinite regress into nothingness. Eventually, something has to come from somewhere. Nothingness doesn't just explode. Although it'd be really cool to just make something explode with my mind. Here's the teleological argument. And the root word there is teleos. It just means purpose. What that means is that when scientists look at the universe, they'll say, like, it feels as if everything has been finely tuned for a purpose. The purpose namely being life on planet Earth. So if you look at our atmosphere, uh, the levels of nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon dioxide are so dialed in that if they're off just a little bit, life is unsustainable on Earth. Or take the water molecule. Many of you know it's the only molecule whose solid form, ice, is less dense than its liquid form, which means that ice cubes float to the top of your iced tea instead of drift to the bottom. That's a big deal when it comes to like the oceans, because if ice didn't float, it would drift to the bottom of the oceans, freezing the oceans, making life unsustainable on the earth. Or check this out. If Jupiter wasn't the size and in the orbit that it's in, astronomers predict that there would be 10,000 times the number of asteroid strikes here on earth, making life unsustainable. Do you realize what that means? Jupiter is like the Dennis Rodman of planets. He is grabbing rebounds and setting picks so that way planet Earth can get open for the three-pointer of life. And those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about because you don't know basketball, trust me, that's good, right? <laughs> or we could put away our telescopes and we could pull out our microscopes and see the same thing. Like the strands of the DNA are absolutely incredible. It's phenomenal. And the odds that that just happened over like billions and billions and billions of years would be similar to like if an ink factory just exploded and then a billion years later it produced the collected works of Shakespeare. Like scientists say that the odds of this all just happening is like somebody flipping a coin and it coming up heads every second for 10 billion years in a row. So either we're just that lucky or perhaps we have an anti-God bias. We know. We don't want to know. Because if it's true, that means some things in my life have to change. It's like pushing a beach ball under the water. It's just going to keep coming up. And if anybody suggested truth that runs against the way I want to live my life, the, the automatic reaction is to suppress it. That's what was going on in Daniel chapter 3. Cancel culture is another form of Romans 1 truth suppression. Because the Bible doesn't just tell us what happened a long, long time ago. It tells us what always happens when an ideology becomes an idol. Look at verse 21. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. 
And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. I've said this to you before, that we were all made to worship, even if you don't believe in God and even if you're not musical. What worship is, is it's affection aimed towards something. And we're all doing it. We, we, we worship at a concert. We worship at a football game. We are taking our affections and aiming it. And here he's saying that uh, we don't just stop worshiping if we don't worship God. We worship created things. We worship other things. And I, I don't want to like oversimplify this, but this is a lot of what we're seeing today is that um, a lot of addictions of all kinds, whether you are addicted to video games, food, alcohol, sports, working out, or porn, those are all worship problems. We are nursing our wounds and insecurities and shortcomings. We are taking our affections and aiming them in the wrong places, and it doesn't fulfill, and it produces anxiety and depression. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. That sounds really, really harsh, unless you are a parent with small kids. Any of you ever like been with your kids, they're asking for something that's going to harm them, but they think it's good? Can we please stay up all night? Can we please eat the whole jar of Nutella? And eventually you're tired of fighting with them. And you're like, knock yourself out. We'll see how that goes for you. See, understand, God's not being harsh here. Every time the Bible says don't, that is God saying don't hurt yourself. But because he's given us free will, he will say, hey, listen, go ahead, knock yourself out. Go down that road. Like, like, like see, see how that's going to work out for you. But he continues to be here. And he's made a way for us to get back to him by grace. And I'm so thankful for that. See, all over the course of human history, the thing that we tend to worship the most is sex. And what this next section is going to say is that the real test of lordship in our lives usually ends up manifesting itself in some way in the form of sexuality. Sex replaces God as the new religion. Look at what it says, verse 24. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. There it is. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Now, I just want to say this to the room and to everybody at all our campuses and online. Right now, put away the binoculars. And grab a mirror. Because what Paul is going to say is we are all in the same boat. We are all guilty of the same thing. The word lust in the Greek is the word porneia. And it simply means any sexual activity in thought, in eyes, or in body outside of a biblically defined marriage between a man and a woman. And Jesus would even take it a step further. And he would say, man, if you've ever even had a lustful thought, you've already, you're already guilty of committing adultery. And I thought about asking you to raise your hands if you've ever had a lustful thought, but I already know the answer. We're all in the same boat. And listen, God does not send people to hell for sexual sin. No, in our sexual sin, we want what we want. And so we refuse, uh, we, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Listen, over and over and over and over again, which separates us from Christ. And Christ is our only bridge to God. Verse 26. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against their natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. 
Now, I want you to know that there's an emotional reaction that's rising up within you because everything within our culture calibrates the compass in the exact opposition of what you just heard. I do want you to know that Paul's not picking on same-sex attraction. Because if you read this within its entire context, what he's doing is he's providing a pretty exhaustive list of all the things in which we have been deceived to exchange the truth of God for a lie. And he is going to put, we're not there yet, but we're going to get to it. He's going to put gossip and disobedience to parents right next to this. This is how we've all done it. Now, you may be here and you're like, well, how does the church think about this issue? I preached specifically to this topic in April of 2019 in a series called Asking for a Friend. I'd encourage you to go back. It's on YouTube and on our website. You can watch it. And then the week following, a friend of mine named Caleb Kaltenbach, who was raised by two gay parents, he was here and he preached on this subject. I think those messages will really, really help you. What I want you to understand is that this ideology has been so inundated within our culture that automatically there's all kinds of questions and maybe even resistance. And I would just simply say this, whether it's same-sex attraction or opposite-sex attraction in which we are tempted to, to treat it outside of the way God designed it, um, here's, here's the line of reasoning. And maybe even something you're thinking right now. Aaron, people, in order to be a complete and fulfilled person, you have to have sex. And I would just simply say, we worship a man who died single and never had sex. Jesus was the most peace-filled, content, healthiest person to ever walk the planet, and he died in abstinence, and he never had sex. Can I, can I just say this very lovingly? In order to be a complete and fulfilled person, you, you, don't, you don't have to have sex. You're not doing it right now. At least we hope not, all right? I mean... <laughs> In fact, many of you right now, if you're being really honest, I mean, I, I'm, I've got a broken heart like multiple times over and a bunch of other issues I'm dealing with because I sought to satisfy sexual urges outside of how God designed it. Now listen, uh, God is not a prude. This is not old fashioned. God was the one who created this. He's all for it, but it's like fire. That's a helpful analogy. Fire is great with, when, where it is in a, an environment where it can provide warmth for your household. Get it outside of that, burns the house down. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of, now here's the exhaustive list and we're all in it. Every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, Boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. I love how he just throws that in there. <laughs> they refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless and have no mercy. Here's what I want to point out in those four verses. He said a mouthful, but you will find the roots of economic, social, spiritual, and family disorder. It's all in there. Remember, we have an enemy who specializes in deceit and he counterfeits the good gifts of God. And oftentimes I will hear, you've likely heard it too. Maybe you've even said it. How can God be so good when he allows all the pain and the suffering that is in this world? And I will simply draw your attention back to the fact that we have an enemy behind the scenes who is creating chaos. God so often gets blamed for Satan's schemes. Here's what that means. Satan breaks wind in the back seat. God gets blamed for it. <laughs> Listen, Jesus defeated him on a cross. His destiny has been decided. And now he is wreaking as much havoc as he possibly can on God's creation. And since you are the apex of God's creation, guess who is enemy number one to him? 
He's gunning for you. It's like he is a rabid dog on a chain. He can run around to a certain parameter, but he's limited, but he's trying to bite everyone that he can. And the answer to this is not to reject God due to the pain and suffering of this world. It is to run to him. Look at verse 32. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. And worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. So what that means is the ideology of culture demands that you approve of them doing these things. Unless I celebrate and support you, then I'm intolerant. And let me just say this as lovingly as I can. If you need other people's approval for your convictions, then maybe you need to reconsider your convictions. And I just want you to hear my heart in this. I, j- I just want to talk to you for a minute. Right now, like if, if you're uncomfortable, if you're angry, if you're like, this is not the church for me, I totally respect that. Let me just say this. If you don't like what God says about sexuality, but you really want to follow Jesus, you need to ask God to change your heart. If you don't like what God says about money and generosity, you need to ask God to change your heart. If you don't like what God says about loving your enemies and forgiving those who have hurt you, you need to ask God to change your heart. And here's why. He's not changing. He's not changing for you. He's not changing for me. He's not changing for the culture. Here's what he said that he would change. He sent Jesus to a cross to change your heart. The transformation of the heart. Now, for those of us that are feeling pretty good about ourselves, because the whole sermon, you've been like, amen, tell him, Aaron, I'm going to send this to my neighbor. (laughs) Chapter 2, verse 1, he's going to take aim at the rest of us. Check this out. You may think you can condemn such people. Who are such people in your mind? You're just as bad. You have no excuse. I think he just open hand slapped us. When you think they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. What he is referring to here is what theologians will call the doctrine of total depravity. And total, the doctrine of total depravity says, while everything we do is not completely sinful, this means that there is good in you. There's good in everyone. Why? Because everyone was created in the image of a good God. There is good in you. But listen, it's not enough. Why? Because nothing we do is completely untouched by sin. Which means that our perspectives and our desires and all that stuff has a sin, flawed, fallen sin nature to it in which it makes us susceptible to the deceptions of an enemy. And we need the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see. And so he's saying here, listen, no amount of work will pay it off. No amount of good effort will pay it off. You need a savior. And I can only begin to grasp the power of the gospel when I understand, just like Paul, and I'm speaking as Aaron Brockett here, the worst sinner I know is me. That's the worst sinner I know. I know my heart. I know my motives. I know how subtle I can be with it. I know the things that I need to continue to submit and resubmit to the Lordship of Christ. Self-righteousness always leads to self-condemning. And now he's going to end on a high note. Aren't you thankful for that? (laughs) About time, somebody said. Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? That's a question meant for you. Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? What's that mean? That means that we've all allowed ourselves to be deceived by a deceiver. We've all said, well, I love Jesus, but I don't really like what he says about such and such. And so I'm going to twist Jesus to fit the way I want to live. 
It means that I love Jesus as Savior, but not really as Lord. And yet I'm still here and I'm still drawing breath into my lungs and God hasn't returned yet. And that is an act of kindness because he wants everyone to come to repentance. He wants everyone to turn. Now, I wanna wrap up with uh, something that I heard a lady named Jen Wilkins say just this last week. She, on her podcast, she was talking about the end of Romans one. And she said this about fell out of my chair. She said, there are two ways to escape from feeling guilty about your sin. You can repent or you can repeat. Turn from it or repeat it over and over until you no longer feel remorse. Like you no longer feel any conviction over it. Like I would even say, if you've done something and you just feel that heaviness, that conviction, that is the Holy Spirit. That's actually a really, really good thing. None of us are perfect. We're gonna continue to fall and we've got God's grace there. What, what should alarm you is when you no longer feel convicted. And right now, if you feel convicted, you need to act upon what you have heard. Who or what has your heart right now? And you can make that decision today. And so what I wanna ask you to do is just ask yourself, like, how do I need to respond to this message? For some of you, you just need somebody to pray with you. Some of you maybe need to confess some stuff. Some of you need to say, man, I, I've been guilty of this. Like I've been kind of twisting Jesus to fit the way that I wanna live no more. I wanna follow Jesus as savior and Lord. Some of you today maybe need to be baptized. And I want you to know that the waters of the baptistry are gonna be open this entire series long. What better time to do it? And so today at all of our campuses, you wanna be baptized, we, we will more than happy to sit down with you, talk with you and, and get that done. But you need to respond in some way. Don't bow to the counterfeit. Bow to the one true King who in his grace loves you enough to give everything to reconcile that relationship with you. But I'm just gonna ask all of our campuses right now, if you would just stand to your feet. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing, and then we're gonna give you a chance to respond. Father, we come to you today. We thank you so much for your infinite goodness and kindness and forgive us when we exchange the truth that you have given us for a lie. God, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see what's really going on. God, I pray that you, we would take this maybe conviction that we feel and turn it into tangible action that would draw us closer to you. God, the church, we've, we've been on our heels for far too long, right? And right now we wanna keep our eyes fixed on you. We wanna lean in, we wanna, wanna come together and we wanna push back the principalities and powers of this dark world because you have given us the Holy Spirit to do so. We ask this in Jesus' name and everybody says, amen. Let's sing.